If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. One of the things that human beings are very good at is making excuses for their actions. Uh, one of the things that I occasionally come across in reading are actual accident reports that are filed with insurance companies. Uh, you've, you've probably seen some of them, but they can be absolutely hilarious because people never just say, uh, I wasn't paying attention and ran into somebody. They, they've got elaborate excuses. One, one of them, this came from an actual report, the man said, I was driving down the street, minding my own business, when a utility pole jumped in front of me. I swerved to avoid hitting the utility pole and hit the other car. Uh, okay, a utility pole jumped in front of you. All right. One of, one of my favorite improvised excuses came from Chico Marx. Some of you are old enough to remember the Marx Brothers. They were a comedy team. If you've never seen any of their movies, if you, if you like comedy, they're funny. But Chico was once caught by his wife kissing a chorus girl. And when his wife confronted him, he said to her, I wasn't kissing her, I was whispering in her mouth. Okay? We remember from our study of the first verses of Romans chapter 4 that Paul is attempting to prove the gospel from the Old Testament. And his chief example uh, on the basis of that proof, or the basis of that proof, is Abraham, the patriarch of the, of the Jewish people, and the one to whom they look to as their spiritual model. So if, if Paul can show that Father Abraham was saved by the grace of God in Christ and received that salvation through the channel of human faith, then he has made his point and established the doctrine. So Paul shows that Abraham was saved through faith, and he quotes Genesis 15:6 to prove it. And that important text says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We said that term counted is an accounting term. Uh, it means to put to someone's account, to credit, to impute, to count. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We went into what he believed, and what he believed was the gospel. And uh, we saw in the book of Galatians, in the book of the gospel of John chapter 8, how Abraham had the gospel preached to him. He knew that a specific descendant of his... Paul says in the book of Galatians, we'll be the one who will bring salvation. He is the one that all of the offerings of the Old Testament point to. Uh, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. So having proved that point concerning Abraham, then Paul adds a second witness. And the witness is David. And this is a, whereas Abraham... Uh, proves Paul's point from a positive standpoint, David proves it as a negative. For David in Psalm 32 said, Blessed is the man to whom God will not count sin or impute sin. So sins being of two types, sin of omission and commission, 
if you haven't done anything you weren't supposed to do, if you have not left anything undone that you were supposed to do, then there's perfect righteousness there. And Paul proves that David also believed this gospel that Abraham had believed. So Abraham was saved by faith apart from human works, as was David. And so we can be saved in exactly the same way. But here is where the excuse-making subtlety of the human mind comes in. Men like to make excuses. So Paul imagines that one of his objectors is going to say, well, wait a minute now. There's more to it than that. What about circumcision? I know that you said earlier that that's an external thing. And God looks not on the externals, but on the heart. But after all, Abraham was circumcised. I mean, that was a part of the covenant, you know, and it was given by God. God gave this sign. And he commanded Abraham to uh, perform this rite on all those who were Jews. And it's been done down through the centuries. From the time of Abraham until now. That has to mean something, Paul. Uh, if it does, then it's not right to say that Abraham was saved by faith alone. He was at least partially saved by circumcision. By something that uh, a man could do. Or, or maybe it's, it's just partly, partly faith and partly circumcision. Maybe, maybe God does his part in salvation and we do our part. It's a synergism, you see. It's, a, it's man working with God to provide salvation. But the Bible teaches, from Genesis to Revelation, that salvation is of the Lord. That it is not man working with God. But rather it is God graciously saving those to whom he grants faith. Those whom he regenerates and then gives them the gift of faith. It doesn't really require a degree in logic to refute this kind of argument. They say that if the ceremonies are given by God, then they must be necessary to attain salvation. People sometimes ask me, is baptism necessary for salvation? Well, I would say this. You've got to understand your terms. Is it? Yes. Baptism is necessary for salvation. It's not necessary for justification. It's not necessary for you to be made right with God, but it is necessary for your sanctification. We're going to, we're going to celebrate the ordinance of baptism uh, this morning, a young man who has made a profession of faith and is following the Lord in believers' baptism. That's the first thing that we're commanded to do after we become Christians, is to make a public profession of our faith by going into the waters of baptism. It's necessary for our sanctification. But joy is not being baptized this morning because... Uh, uh, it's necessary for his justification. Not at all. Joy believed God. 
And God counted it to him as righteousness. What did he believe? He believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. This, this rite that we perform is a matter of sanctification, not justification. There, there, are, there are those today who would argue that redemption, that baptism, or maybe the Lord's Supper, is necessary for you to be justified. That you can't be made right with God until you're baptized. That's the very thing Paul's arguing against. That's the very thing that the, the book of Romans says, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ did give us both of those ordinances. And they do have value. But they have nothing to do with justification. They have nothing to do with our being made right before God. Uh, Paul is going to explain circumcision's value by saying that it is a sign and a seal of the righteousness that is received by faith. But that's not the same thing as saying that it is the ground on which a person receives righteousness in the first place. Paul's argument is, is very strong here. In these verses, Paul asked when it was that Abraham was declared to be righteous by God. When did Abraham's justification take place? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Obviously, it was after. Uh, we said that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Fourteen years later, God gives that sign of circumcision to him. Uh, therefore, since Abraham was not saved by circumcision, he can be cited not only as the father of the Jews who believed, but those who have not been Jews, those who were not circumcised and yet have believed. He is the spiritual father of all of those who look to Jesus Christ for saving faith or for redemption, for salvation, who put their faith and their trust in him. Because he was declared to be righteous before he was circumcised. So he is the father of believing Jews, he is the father of believing Gentiles. The Jews have been basing their hopes of being saved as Jews on Abraham. But the example of Abraham actually proves that God saves people through Jesus Christ regardless of their origin, regardless of their ethnic background. Uh, Paul, in effect, in these verses in Romans, turns the boasting of the Jews upside down. It is not that the Gentiles must come to the Jew and be circumcised in order to have salvation, but rather it is the Jew who must come to a Gentile faith. It is the Jew who must believe, uh, have the faith that Abraham had long before he was ever circumcised, long before the sign of the covenant was given to him. It's vital that we see how important that is. If you are a Jew and you are saved, it is not 
because you're a Jew. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ. If you are a Gentile and you are saved, it is not because of anything that you have or have not done as a Gentile. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ. No one is saved because they have been baptized. No one becomes a believer by taking the Lord's Supper. No one becomes a believer just by coming to a building like this and a service like this. You must believe the gospel. You must believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That he was buried and he rose again the third day. And when you believe that, when you trust him, God imputes his righteousness to you. Just like he did to Abraham. Just like he did to David. God counts the righteousness of Christ to be yours. We said it's like a ledgers in a, in a bookkeeping uh, operation. You have no righteousness in your ledger. All you got is sin. But when you believe on Jesus Christ, God takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and puts it into your account. He takes all of your sin and puts it on Christ in his account. So that you stand before God declared to be perfectly righteous. Not because you've done something, but because you have simply believed what God has provided in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. A person is saved through faith in the perfect and completed work of Christ. Of course, there's still a valid question here. If Abraham is saved by faith, apart from circumcision, which he must have been because he's declared to be righteous 14 years before that sign is given to him, why was the right given? Why did God institute this ceremony? Well, what's it for? Like baptism. If baptism doesn't make us right with God, then why do we do it? Uh, our, to put the question another way, just what is the purposes, the purpose of these ordinances? And this Bible passage that we're looking at this morning answers the question in one verse. Uh, the two most important words in the Bible for understanding what the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper about, are the two words, sign and seal. Take the word sign first. Paul writes that Abraham received the sign of circumcision. Well, what does that mean? In simple language, a sign is a visible object that points to something different from and greater than itself. Let's suppose you're on Interstate 75 and you see a sign that says Knoxville, 50 miles. Then you understand that Knoxville is 50 miles ahead of you. The sign is not Knoxville, but the sign points to Knoxville. Though it is much less than the city itself, it is not without value. It is something that points to something that is greater than itself. I suppose you are you are driving down a certain road and you see a place that says Joe's Diner 
this sign does what the first example, the, the sign in my first example does as well. It points to the diner as being Joe's diner. But in this case, it also signifies ownership. It's not just any diner. Joe's diner. Uh, I use that second illustration because it, imports, it, it brings in another important element into the discussion. On the first level, an ordinance being a sign points to something different from and greater than itself. In the case of circumcision, it is a case of pointing to the covenant that God established with Abraham based on the work of Jesus Christ. In the case of the New Testament ordinances, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's the same thing. The Lord's Supper, in particular, points back to the death of Christ. He said, this is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood that is poured out for you. But on the second level, these ordinances also indicate ownership. When you go into the waters of baptism, you are saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. And I am doing this because he commands it. And because he is my Lord, I must do what he commands. You, you do realize that in the early church, they, they didn't have an aisle and you, you didn't have a communion table that people mistakenly call an altar. This this table is not an altar. You do know that, don't you? We're not we're not killing anybody or anything in here. An altar was used to kill animals. We don't do that. The reason we don't do that because of this table is a communion table. It points back to the one death that ended all sacrifices, the death of Jesus Christ. But in the early church, when someone wanted to publicly say to the world, "I am a Christian," I belong to Jesus Christ, they were baptized. By being baptized, they were making a public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. It was a sign to the world that they belonged to him. That is what baptism is today. Your baptism is a sign of ownership. And it points to something greater than different from itself baptism does not make us right with God baptism says we are right with God therefore we're going to obey him we're going to keep the commands that he gives us that's why baptism is a public rather than a private act it is a declaration to the world of who we belong to we testify to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ by going into the waters of baptism. The second word that Paul uses to describe the nature of the ordinance, circumcision, baptism, Lord's Supper, whatever, is the word seal. He says that Abraham's circumcision was the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised we don't use seals very often today and so we're a bit confused sometimes about what they mean and how important they are 
Well, let's suppose that you want to travel uh, out of the country. Well, you're going to need a passport. And so you go somewhere and you have two little pictures made. You fill out an application uh, and you send your application uh, to the United States Department of State, passport agencies somewhere. And, you know, in six weeks or whatever, they'll send you your passport back. And when it when it comes, you'll find that one of those pictures that you had made is affixed to the passport. Uh, and there is a seal, the great seal of the United States. It's stamped into the passport in such a way that it is impossible to remove it or to alter it without damaging the passport and invalidating the document. The seal indicates that the authority of the United States government stands behind the passport in affirming that the person whose picture appears in that passport is a citizen of the United States. And it requests that you allow them to pass through uh, your customs or borders of, of another country. Uh, the other use of a seal that we use now is if we have a legal document we take it to someone who is a notary public and we sign an affidavit that what is in that document is true and it is uh, valid and then they have a seal that they stamp the document with. Usually it's embossed, it raises the paper, you've all seen them. But it is a, it is a mark of authentication. Ordinances operate in that way. In the case of Abraham, Paul says that the circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That is, Abraham believed God, God imputed righteousness to him, and then God gave the sign and the seal of circumcision to validate what had happened. He put his stamp of approval on it. In the same way, Baptism is a seal that the purpose, person being baptized has been identified with Jesus Christ as his disciple. And the elements of the Lord's Supper, when they are received, indicate that the person has taken Jesus to himself as intimately and inseparably as eating bread and drinking wine. The ordinances are important as signs and seals of what has happened spiritually and invisibly, but not as a means of salvation. We often say that baptism, for instance, is an outward sign of an inward change. You go into the waters of baptism indicating, I have been justified. God has declared me righteous on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. That happened inside. That's internal. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and God imputed his righteousness to me and all of my sins to Christ. This baptism is an outward sign of what has happened inwardly. It testifies to the world that I have been declared righteous. Now the last portion of our text teaches that because Abraham was saved by faith, before he was circumcised, he has become the father of all who are truly saved, both Jew and Gentile. 
Well, that doesn't mean that no one was justified before Abraham. Uh, Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, other many other believers were also justified by faith. But it does mean that in Abraham's case, the way of salvation was made explicit in the Scripture for the first time. Therefore, all who have been saved trace their spiritual ancestry to him. There are Jewish descendants, first of all. Abraham was followed in the faith by Isaac, then by Jacob. They were not giants like he was, but each of them looked forward to the Messiah who would come and provide salvation. God declares himself to be the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob to Moses. David is in that ancestry. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of the prophets. At the time of Jesus, there were many who took their places in the line of Abraham's descendants, spiritually, Mary and Joseph, Anna, Simeon, uh, and others. John the Baptist, who pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were the descendants of Abraham because they believed. Paul's going to make it abundantly clear in his writings that those who are the descendants of Abraham are not physically but spiritually his descendants. There are many Jews who are not descendants of Abraham because they don't believe. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. The eleven disciples were among this group. Simon, Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, Andrew, Philip, Matthew, the rest. Later, Paul joined their ranks. Barnabas, the early deacons of the church. John Mark, who wrote the second gospel. These were all Jews and went, therefore, in the great company of those who the father of the circumcised, not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Then there spiritual descendants of Abraham that are Gentiles. Not, not so many at first. Uh, there was Caleb, who became a member of the tribe of Judah, but originally was a, a Kenizzite, a foreigner. Then there was Rahab of Jericho, Ruth of Moab, Naaman, the Syrian general, the Magi, who come to worship Jesus. They are Gentiles. During the lifetime of Jesus, we have Gentiles who believe, like the Syrophoenician woman and the centurion who approached Jesus on behalf of his paralyzed and suffering servant. All of these were praised for their great faith, like the woman of Samaria. After the resurrection, Philip preaches to an Ethiopian who is a eunuch, and he believed. Then he went up the coast preaching in all of these Gentile cities where many more believed. Peter preached to Cornelius. Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. All of them traced their spiritual heritage to Abraham because Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And they took the sign and the seal of their faith. They were baptized. And they partook of the Lord's Supper. Those ordinances did not add anything to their justification. 
nothing whatsoever. They were declared righteous at the moment they believed on Jesus Christ. Those ordinances were a sign and a seal of what they had done. They were a visible testimony to the world and still are that we belong to Jesus Christ. That we are the descendants of Abraham. Not physically, spiritually. It's spiritually that matters. About 20 years ago, I was in the South Pacific and uh, I taught in the seminary for a week and on Friday night we had a banquet. And there was a, a man who was an American who was in the group and uh, how should I say this? He was a man very impressed with himself. And he, he got up and told this story and it was basically uh, how, how wonderful he was and how wonderful his family was and his last name was Madison and he's tracing Madison's back up through history and this was the days before Google but I minored in history and I knew some of his history I didn't think that was right if I if I could have Googled it I would have known you know but I thought no that's that's not right you've you've made that up that didn't happen well finally he gets to the the penultimate or the ultimate uh, trajectory of his testimony and he says that James Madison the President of the United States was one of his ancestors I thought, oh, oh, that's nice well then the crowd all turns and looks at me because of all the people that were seated at the banquet table it was only me and him were Americans and so they all kind of give me that and so I said, <clears throat> well, the Kurs came over in the bottom of the boat from Scotland. And they were bartenders and horse thieves. But we as handsome horse thieves. I, I, I don't know where your ancestors might have come from. Whether they came over on the Mayflower or, or snuck in, I, I don't know. But here's the deal. You have a spiritual ancestry that goes all the way back to Abraham if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. He is our Father. You, if you have not done that, you can step into the ranks of the greatest honor roll of ancestors that any human being could ever possibly have. It won't cost you a cent. It'll cost you your pretensions. It'll cost you your pride, but nothing else. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you become a child of Abraham, a child of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this word. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Uh, couple of announcements next Sunday time changes yeah you know how that works you got to get up two o'clock change your clock jump back to bed yeah so don't forget to do that uh, still receiving offering for the building uh, many have given on that we've 
had something over $10,000 that's been given already. I appreciate your faithfulness in giving. Uh, we, we, you may have noticed we're making some progress. All of the old baseboard, the old shoe molding has been taken up. It had to be taken up before uh, the new carpet could go down. Uh, some fellows came this week and did that. Jesse Lopez did most of it. Uh, and Rick Bright and Dole uh, assisted in that as well. Next Sunday, next Sunday, we need as many as can come to come back to the church about 2 o'clock because we have to clear this room. All the chairs have to be carried out. Everything has to be carried out except for the piano and the organ. We don't do that. But the room has to be cleared out because on Monday the 15th, the carpet people will be in here to put down the new carpet. So uh, all of you who can help with that, a couple of weeks ago we, we carried chairs up when the last of the pews went out. We had about 13 people. That made it great because you don't have near the trips to make if you've got that many people. Uh, so uh, we'll, I'll remind you that of that again uh, next week, but we'll need you. Then we'll need you back the following Saturday to carry everything back in onto the new carpet. So uh, keep that in mind. All right, we are going to celebrate the ordinance of baptism this morning. Joey, if you want to go on up to the uh, dressing room there, uh, David, if you want to come and uh, sing a couple of songs while we get ready to do the baptism. All right, if you'll take your hymnal at this time and turn to number 325, number 325, Wider Than Snow. <laughs> 